Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I felt, it felt, felt I feel right. right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, for Mother's Day, we're bringing you two stories of maternal instinct. Our first story this week is from Pam Feliciano. It was recorded in September 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was home. When I was finishing my PhD um, in genetics in 2004, um, I had a baby. And um, surprisingly, he was really large. He was 10 pounds and six ounces. Um, but I, the story is not about how I gave birth to him. Um, <laughs> so um, he, he, was, he was perfect. He was beautiful. Um, when he was 16 months old, um, we moved. And there were cardboard boxes everywhere in the house. And one day we're unpacking, and, and he started pointing out the letters and the numbers, like GM57. And I was like, wow, I had no idea my child knows the alphabet. Um, and then came the orange Lego mystery. So um, he had this big, block, uh, big box of Legos. Um, he never played with them. Um, but I would find from time to time piles of orange Legos, just like of a very specific size and shape, only these Legos set aside in piles from the rest of, of the bucket um, from time to time. And I was like, wow, between his emerging literacy and his um, analytical approach, very scientific approach to um, Legos, I was like, I have, I have a genius here. And so around that time, he loved, um, at bedtime, he would say, sing Puff, sing Puff Mama. And so I only knew one stanza of Puff the Magic Dragon, but he didn't care. He wanted to hear it every night. And um, I guess after he turned two, I realized that I hadn't heard him ask for that in a long time. And then after a couple of weeks, I was like, hmm. So I called the doctor and I said, you know, um, I know this is gonna sound a little weird, but I feel like I haven't heard um, Dylan speak for a couple of weeks. Like he, he hasn't asked for Puff and, um, you know, for the past months, maybe he said one word. And, you know, do you think that his vocal cords are strained or something? And 
<laughs> she's she she asked me a couple questions and then she said, "Well, do you think he's regressing? Do you think he's losing skills?" And I was like, "Regressing? No, no, he's fine. He's not regressing." And she said, "Well, you know, why don't you take him, make an appointment for a hearing test?" Um, and then also take him for a speech evaluation. So um, long, couple months, long story short, um, on a really, really hot um, summer um, day in 2007, I took him to a developmental pediatrician. And we walked into the office and he like sees this alphabet rug on the floor and he like makes a total beeline for it and he starts labeling like the letters and the numbers and I'm like, my kid is so smart. Um, and the doctor tries to get him to play with an Elmo doll. And she's like, Dylan, feed the Elmo. Um, give Elmo a drink of water. And Dylan is not interested in the Elmo. And I thought, that's fine. Like, who has time for Elmo anyway? And <laughs> like, who cares? Like, he doesn't need to play with Elmo. Like, he doesn't want to do that. Um, like, he's too busy turning on and off the lights, which were more interesting to him, and opening and closing the door, which I thought was also fine. And so 20 minutes goes by, and she turns to me, and she says, I'm, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but, but your son, um, he meets criteria for autism spectrum disorder. And I was like, no, no, I, I don't think so. And um, I'm thinking, like, she literally has only known him for 20 minutes. Like, I know that she's a doctor, but I have a PhD and I'm a postdoc. Like, this is not happening. Like, I know my son. Like, I would know. And um, so I pushed back at her like a good scientist. I said, what evidence do you have for this conclusion? <laughs> so she, she looked at me gently and she started listing all the milestones he wasn't hitting. Well, um, he doesn't respond to his name. Um, he doesn't um, have much eye contact. He um, doesn't have functional language. So this was like really huge to me. I, I, I did not know this, but you know, she said, he, does, he can speak, he can say words, he can repeat what you're saying, but he doesn't use it for any functional purpose. There's no motive behind his communication. I was like, oh. And um, she said, and there's more, um, he doesn't nod his head, yes or no. Um, and he doesn't even say, like, wave hello or goodbye, but still I was skeptical. I mean, I am a scientist. And so I said, you know, but how are you so sure? You know, how do you, he's only two and a half. How would, how come you don't know that he can develop these skills in the next year? I mean, he's only two and a half. And she said, um, well, that is a rare um, possibility, but today he, he has autism. And I said, okay, even if all of that's true, um, I signed him up for nursery school. I still wasn't buying it. It's like I signed him up for nursery school and he's starting in six weeks, so that should be enough time to, to deal with this autism thing, right? And um, <laughs> I did. And and she was like, mm, no, um, Dylan's not gonna go to nursery school. And then she really blew my mind. She said, what Dylan needs is an intensive intervention. He needs 40 hours a week of one-on-one -on -one therapy for a couple of years. And um, this was 10, 10 years ago. So she said, you know, and these therapists are gonna be really hard to come by because there aren't that many of them. 
and um, none of this is going to be covered by your health insurance. So it's going to be kind of challenging. And so I said, okay. Um, so we went home and um, it was really stressful for um, those couple months after diagnosis. I was either in a state of like extreme despair um, or denial. Clearly I was in denial. Um, and I lost a lot of weight and I ended up getting divorced. And after the divorce, um, I, I, there wasn't much left between the autism and, and the divorce. And so I had a choice. Um, I could either spend most of my income on rent and live in an apartment, um, or I could take that couple of thousand dollars and <clears throat> use it to pay for a therapy so that Dylan would have therapy every day after school so he would get the 40 hours because they made such a big deal about he needs as much as you can get and he needs that 40 hours and 30 isn't enough and if you can get 50, that's even better. So um, we moved into my parents' basement, um, the two kids and I, and um, that lasted for like a year before it got too challenging. Um, so then after that, we moved into a really small one bedroom, third floor attic apartment. And when we moved in, I said to the landlord, you know, I need, I, we need window guards here. Um, like I have two young kids, one of them has special needs. Um, and he said, well, um, I can only, I can put window guards on, but I can only do it on all of the windows and each window is going to be like 200, 200, $300. Um, so there's that. And I was like, well, you know, that's not going to happen. So um, I figured I could come up with a cheaper solution, um, duct tape, which worked really well. Um, I took a roll of duct tape and I literally like put it on the windowsills on the bottom. It's like, this is fine, like just for a while until I could figure something else out. And um, when we moved into that apartment, Dylan had been getting therapy for at least three years by that point. So he had actually started to make some progress and he had gained some language. Um, but at that point, his language was really just meaningful to him. So he only liked to talk about things that were really <clears throat> of interest to him, his restricted interests, so to speak. And so, Dylan, so this can vary. Um, depending on the person, but lots of people with autism have restricted interests. And for Dylan, his restricted interest um, was hand dryers in public restrooms. So um, he would always ask me, and he still does, um, can we go to Star, well, he wouldn't say that, because he doesn't have that many words, but it, you know, he would basically want to go to Starbucks to see the trapezoid dryers. And I had no idea what trapezoid dryers meant. But after, you know, after a while, I'm observant, and I realized that the trapezoid dryer means accelerator brand hand dryers. So you all know what those are, those like super powerful things that like when you put your hands under, you are amazed by the strength of the hand drying that occurs in your hands. Um, so I realized that's what he meant. And so we'd go to Starbucks and he would get his trapezoid dryer fix and I would get my latte. And so this is good. And um, after like literally a year and a half of, of observing the trapezoid dryer behavior, 
Um, I was like, you know, maybe if I get down at his level and experience this hand dryer exactly like Dylan does, I will understand the hand dryer. And so I did. And, you know, like in the bathroom, it can be kind of gross. People like leave toilet paper. Like, why do people do that? Like the toilet paper on the floor. Um, So I got down on my knees, like next to Dylan, and I'm like looking up into this hand dryer exactly like he does because he like sticks his face right into the vents. And so I do that and I'm like, holy, like, I can't believe what I see. And it's these, the tra- the vents of the trapezoid, of the dryer are in the shape of a red trapezoid. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you, all, you all are not amazed as, as much as I was. But when that happened, I was like, oh my God, I have figured out autism. I, <laughs> I have figured it out. And um, yeah, it was pretty awesome. So, uh, you know, but I thought it was like a really good example of his language at that time because he did have language, but the language that he used, it was meaningful only to him and only about stuff he cared about. And it didn't matter for a year and a half. I had no effing idea what he meant by trapezoid jar. And so um, when he come home from school, um, he, I would always say to him when he got off the bus, Dell, how was school? Um, did you have a good day? Were, were you good? Did you behave? And he would, he would answer me um, very briefly, but he would. And um, so lo- one other thing about kids with autism is like they don't use pronouns correctly. So, you know, when you call him, you're like, you, how did you have your day? And so he calls himself you, not, not me. So it gets confusing. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> so he, I'm like, how was your day? And he would always say like, um, yes, yes, you did behave. You did be flexible. And I'm like, great. Or other days he'd be like, no, no. No, I did not behave. Oh, he didn't say I. Sorry. He would say, no, you did not behave. And um, so one day, and this went on every day for like months. And so one day he runs up off the bus and he runs up to me, looks at me like very happily. And he's like, did you behave at school today? Yes, you did. And I was like, wow. Um, Because it was like he was starting to link that conversation with that, that, that context. And that was huge. You know, just to be able to link those two things together, even if it was this like weird, yeah, like conversation uh, with him, but not really. Um, and so I was pumped. And um, one other thing that I have learned um, along the way is that a lot of kids with autism have sleep issues. So um, literally, and Dylan's lucky; he he does sleep, which is good for me. Um, but he it takes him a long time to get there. So he will toss and turn for like three or four hours before he goes to bed. And um, I at that time, like I well, there was one day I was just so sick of 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 the of having to go back in and trying to get him to bed. And I was like, I am not doing that tonight. I have a lot of work for Nature Genetics I need to do and like reject a lot of papers. Um, but <laughs> and so I'm like, I have to get this work done. Um, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there. So I'm like on my laptop whatever, and I hear him making noise, and it's like, okay, it's, it's not, nothing crazy. And then around 11.30, I'm like, okay, it's time for bed. So I go into the bedroom that I shared with the two kids, and um, <clears throat> Dylan's awake, and he's sitting up in his bed, and I'm like looking around, and like there's a nightlight in there, so I can see a little bit, but not everything. I'm like, hmm, like those laundry baskets that are next to the bed aren't there, that's kind of weird. And then I'm like, next to the dresser, I'm like, ooh, those, there's like usually two carry-ons like 
stuck in between the dresser and the wall and they're not there. And then I'm like looking at my younger son and he's fast asleep, which is great because he can sleep through an apocalypse, which is great when you have a brother with autism. Um, and so he's asleep on his bed, but there's no pillow and there's no blanket. And I'm like, Dylan, his, he's sitting on like a bare bed, like nothing. Like there's no sheets, no blanket, no pillow, no mattress pad. I'm like, what is going on? And I like look over and there's a window that's open, um, but not from the bottom because I like had sealed it shut with duct tape, but from the top, like it was broken or whatever. And so it's half open and um, the window, there's no window screen. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, it dawned on me what had happened. Like, in the middle of the night, my son with autism had decided to throw all of our belongings out the window. 11.30, 12 midnight. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so I call my mom, like, Mom, I don't know what to do. Dylan threw everything out the window. I mean, like, really, it was bad. So I go down, and I'm like, in the bushes, like picking up Legos and toys. And like, I find my iPad out there. I'm like, thank God, like this is my work iPad. It didn't break. And then I even found like my nice digital camera in the bushes and I'm like, okay, this is good. At least this didn't break. And I'm like crying. And then my neighbor who, who lives downstairs, who was also a single mom, um, comes out and she like tells me, um, Pamela, um, God only gives us what we are strong enough to handle. And I'm like, oh, that's not, <laughs> not, I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, I don't think that's helpful. So then, <laughs> but I was, <laughs> I was grateful. Like she, she made an effort. Usually she would like leave me notes. Like, I think you hit my car. I'm like, I didn't hit your car. So this was a lot for her. I was like, okay. So, um, I go back upstairs and I'm like, Dill, buddy, like, why? Why did you do this? And I look at him and he looks at me and he, there is just no language. And there is not going to be a why. There is never going to be a why ever. And um, I think if, you know, we all have this idea in our head that, that maybe there was like a moment in our lives when we had a rock bottom and I, I, that was mine. Um, and so with time, um, I, I, I gained perspective, like time that actually happens. And I realized once I had thought about it, that it was actually um, pretty funny. I mean, why would you throw everything out the window? Like there's no, there's no reason. Like he wasn't mad, he's too innocent. Like he wouldn't even know how to like be spiteful. He just did it because he could do it, I think. Or, or I don't know, like I still might never know. And um, it, it, it just, I realized also that um, if I was going to survive this life with autism with Dylan, that I had to stop spending all this emotional bandwidth, like wondering why. And I had to um, just, to, you know, why does Dylan have autism? Why did he throw out the window? And the answer is really simple. Like, I don't know. And, and it's okay. 
And so, you know, despite these really dark moments with Dylan, there is so much that he's given to me as a person and as a scientist and being able to be his mom and bear witness to his very unique journey in his life. Um, it can be three steps forward, two steps back, um, but still there's progress and he moves upward and forward and it is really beautiful to, to witness. Um, and Dylan... Um, because of his autism, when I had the chance to join this amazing organization called the Simons Foundation, um, um, that well, there's a part of the Simons Foundation that focuses on autism, and I had a chance to join them, I jumped at the chance. And today I am scientific director of this really large study, the largest research study on autism ever. Um, and we're recruiting tens of thousands of families into this study, and um, every day at work, um, or not every day because we're too busy. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not, I can't look at the data every day. But some days when I get the chance to, to look at the data, I, I do feel really overwhelmed because I see these rows and rows and rows of data and, and I'm overwhelmed not just by the size of our data set, but, but um, because I know that in each row there's a, behind it there's a person like my son and a family like mine and a mom like me. And I know that the parents want to know why and to be able to be a part of Spark and to be able to be a person that gets to give information back to families about why um, feels so amazing. And as a scientist, yes, I want Spark to accelerate research and get to better treatments. But as a parent, what I really want Spark to do is to get to better diagnosis days. Because I think that when a parent like me walks into a doctor's office and gets blindsided um, by this diagnosis that is almost always a lifelong disability, um, there should be better answers to why and what now. Thank you. That was Pam Feliciano. As scientific director of SparkForAutism.org, Pamela leads the efforts to build the largest autism research cohort in the United States to speed up research and improve lives. Spark aims to build a partnership between 50,000 individuals with autism and their families and autism researchers. She's also been a senior scientist at Safari, the largest private funder of autism research in the United States since 2013. Our second story today is from Catherine Gammon, who was recorded in October 2016 at The Mint in Los Angeles. It's 9.47 on a Thursday night this March, and I'm about to give birth on a sidewalk in Santa Monica. <laughs> I know, right? But let me back up a minute. I'm a science writer, as Brian mentioned, and uh, my whole life is uh, speaking to scientists and explaining it to the public. I'm the daughter of two scientists, and it's something I take very seriously. My first son was born right on time, a day before his due date, and so I knew that given the data from him, I had about an 85% chance of delivering my second kid right on time, or about right on time. But I was still a little concerned when I woke up about a month before my due date with excruciating pain. I thought I might be in early labor, 
Even so, and even more so because I uh, sent emails to my editors telling them that my drafts might be late and, you know, they might have to give me a little wiggle room. Um, and that evening, after the labor pains continued all day, we packed our bags and headed to the hospital. But minutes after arriving at the hospital, a tall, gray-haired man, who I'm going to call Dr. Bernstein, informed me that I was not, in fact, in labor. He said it was pre-labor, the contractions weren't strong enough, I wasn't dilated. Um, his exact words were, go home, take a Benadryl, try to get some rest. This might happen on and off for the next five weeks, so you should probably just relax. You can imagine how I felt. I was in a lot of pain and I was very frustrated. So my husband and I took our bags and did the walk of shame out of the hospital <laughs> with no baby. And on the car ride home, I, was, I started to cry a little bit. I, I was just, I couldn't imagine how I was going to live the next month of my life if this was going on and off and on and off. I couldn't do anything about it. And my husband, Evan, is the most optimistic person in the world, but I could tell that even he was starting to get a little frustrated with the situation. But I'm a big believer in scientific authority. And uh, like I said, I spend my, my daytimes trying to convince the public that things like climate change and vaccines are real and good and we should do something. <laughs> so armed with this new information, I did exactly what the doctor said. I went home, I took a Benadryl, and I went to sleep. And the next morning, I woke up and I said, okay, this is my new reality. I'm just going to repeat to myself the mantra, I'm not in labor, I'm not in labor. So the whole day... I went through, picked up my son from his emergency overnight. I'm not in labor, I'm not in labor. Went to the park. I'm not in labor. Uh, went shopping for a dinner party that we were throwing that night. I had to put my head down at the checkout stand at Vaughn's because I was doubled over in labor pain. But no, I'm not in labor. <laughs> we threw the dinner party um, around 7 that night and our friends came over. And uh, I had to explain to them that I wasn't feeling very well, but I was Definitely not in labor. But somewhere between the roast pork and the dessert course, I suddenly found myself armed with an, a, a new piece of information. My body just couldn't hold still. The, the, the pains were getting stronger and stronger, and, and I was uh, unable to deal with them. So I, I excused myself from the party. I went to the bathroom. I took a very long, very hot shower. And then I went to the bedroom and pulled on pajama pants and put on a T-shirt and I laid down in the bed. And I could still hear the dinner party happening just outside the door. And there was, you know, happy voices and laughing over the dessert. And uh, I laid there in bed and I rolled around and I tried to get comfortable. I was going to play a game with myself. I was going to wait 10 minutes to see if this pain went away. Because, you know, I wasn't in labor after all. I'd been told that I wasn't in labor. So I did yoga. I breathed. I didn't breathe. And then I came up with a new mantra. <laughs> I'm actually in labor and not just labor, like it is really advanced labor. Like somehow I had cruised through centimeters one through 10 and now I was in transition and I was about to start pushing. So my body started to shake very violently and that's when I called my husband and I said, we can't stay here any longer. We need to go like now, and he had his glass of wine. He's like, what are, what are you talking about? You're not in labor. I said, no, 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 this time, no, this, this is real. Um, so we took our bags, which were still packed from the night before, and we headed out the door, and my husband waved to our friends at the dinner party. We'll be back in an hour, he said. Um, as soon as we stepped out, 
onto the sidewalk. I grabbed the wall next to our house and I said, honey, we waited too long. Like this baby is coming. And to describe a little bit about labor, you go through uh, the first stage and then there's a transitional phase, which is probably what I was experiencing on the bed, which is excruciating. And then there's the urge to push. And people have described this entire scientific literature as a truck plowing through your body. <laughs> there is almost no way to stop this, but I tried. So my husband says, very optimistically, get in the car, we can make it to the hospital. And I said, okay, okay, I'll try that. And I stepped into the front seat of our Subaru and closed the door behind me. And we were off like a shot. He suddenly realized from my shaking that this was totally real and the baby was coming imminently. And he took a right and then a left and then a right and suddenly we were on the freeway only to see a sea of brake lights. Because this is LA after all. <laughs> and... Uh, at this point, I was just screaming, fuck you, Dr. Bernstein! Why did you mansplain labor to me? <laughs> and my husband heroically crossed several lanes of traffic to get off the freeway to take me to the, lo the closest local emergency room. And while we were in the car, the contractions were hitting me, just plowing through my body, and I was gripping my knees together, trying to keep this baby inside me, and this baby was pushing his way out, and I felt myself rip as we were taking a right-hand turn. But <laughs> suddenly we pulled up at the ER, and I saw the glittering lights over there on the right, and it said emergency room. And I was still in the car, and the baby was still inside me. And I opened the door, and I took one step out of the car, <laughs> and bam, everything changed. And the first thing that I noticed was a feeling of being warm and wet from the waist down. <laughs> and the second thing that I noticed was that there was something in my pants. <laughs> the baby, from the force of changing the gravity from sitting to standing, had emerged from my body and was currently in my pajama pant leg. <laughs> so most parents imagine holding their newborn like this in their arms, but I was holding him like this so that he didn't fall on the sidewalk. So, the, and worst of all, the third thing I noticed was that the baby was not making any noise. I must have made a noise, though, because Evan ran over from the driver's side, and without saying a word to each other, I lifted up my pant leg, and the tiny, bloody baby slid down into his arms, and he was kneeling in front of me on the sidewalk. And still the glittering lights of the emergency room were over here, but no one knew that we were there. And at that moment, I looked down, and I saw the baby, and I saw my husband holding him, cradling him to his chest. And the baby looked up at me and gave this ginormous yell. <laughs> and I knew that everything was going to be okay because he was pink and he was screaming and, you know, Apgar, blah, blah, blah. It's great. Um, <laughs> but we still had this problem because we were like conjoined triplets. I was <laughs> attached to the baby. <laughs> through my pant leg. Uh, the baby was being held by my husband and, and none of us could move. Um, 
And we waited a full minute, which felt like several hours, before someone emerged from the emergency room to check out who these people were on a darkened sidewalk. <laughs> and uh, the guy's got, eyes got really big when he took in the situation of me covered in goo <laughs> and the tiny bloody baby with abrasions on his forehead from shooting out into the cotton pajama pants. And after that, everything started to go just boom, 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 super fast. There was a, 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 um, sorry, a bed was brought out, and then they held up curtains as they took my pants off. I was like, why didn't you cut them? But they know they took them off very carefully and, and put them in a plastic bag. And then um, they cut the cord right there on, on the sidewalk, which what looked with something that looked like safety scissors. And uh, then they came out and offered warm blankets, and my husband was like, no, I'm good. And they were like, no, dipshit, it's for the baby. <laughs> so, and then suddenly, I was on the bed, and the baby was on my chest, and we were being wheeled in to the glorious hospital with the glorious doctors and the drugs and all the things that I wanted for my birth. <laughs> and there was a standing ovation in the waiting room as we entered, as everyone got to see this tiny, tiny baby. And he was so small, he was only four and a half pounds when he was born, um, which might have been why it was so easy for him to just sloosh out <laughs> on the sidewalk. Um, we texted our friends after we got into the hospital. It was 17 minutes after we left home, a picture of the newborn baby. <laughs> and they were very surprised. <laughs> and they agreed to spend the night at our house because our sleeping toddler was still there. So <laughs> that turned out all right. <laughs> um, and I still believe in scientific authority, but I do... <laughs> think that, you know, it's important to trust your own instincts in situations, especially when someone who's tall and male and has gray hair tries to explain your own body to you. <laughs> Thank you. That was Catherine Gammon. Catherine is an award-winning freelance science writer based in Santa Monica, California. She has written about a wide range of topics, from childhood memory to sexually transmitted diseases in koalas, to designing cities on Mars for publications like Wired, Popular Science, Newsweek, and Scientific American. With two little boys under age four, she has endless fodder for her blog, Kinderlab, about child development. If you enjoyed today's story or are a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 or more a month, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. The Story Collider is grateful for support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Ahmad, Eli Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and The Mint for hosting these shows, and to my mom for being my mom. Thanks for listening.